Good evening. I'm Axis. I'm Moner. And you're listening to The Late Night, a horror podcast. Welcome back, everyone, and happy March. March is, as you should all know by now, Axis's birth month and Amanda's birth month. And I thought we'd make this lineup a cat-tastic adventure to suit. So tonight, we're starting with Louis Teague's Cat's Eye from 1985, starring Drew Barrymore, James Woods, and Patricia Callenberg. And we'll be following that with Mick Garris's Sleepwalkers from 1992, starring Brian Krause, Mae Chinamic, and Alice Krieg. We'll be right back after the tone. Stay tuned. So, <laughs> okay, so Cat's Eye 1985 uh-huh. is where that was that moment where I was like, man, I want to do something really nice for my friends. And then I went, man, I'm a, I'm a fucking idiot and I shouldn't be allowed to choose gifts for a while. <laughs> so, um, no, no, this is one where I will say it was as some of our movies are, a lot more fun together. This is a gift best True. enjoyed with friends, for True. sure. Or, you know, a hearty drink, as I did my first watch through alone. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I would say that Cat's Eye is much better... Cat's Eye is a much better shorter title than Stephen King's popular right now, so let's milk the shit out of his franchise as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um... The film revolves around a nameless tabby cat, ha ha, and his wife's name is Tabitha, um, who, in addition to being treated like shit by human society, the cat, not Tabitha King, I'll kill anybody who treats Tabitha King like shit. Um, So, in addition to being treated like shit by human society, Cujo the dog, and the car Christine, uh, the cat is also haunted by the disembodied ghost of a girl who's not yet dead, who needs his help. And then we get to the movie in our lineup, and boy, do I have thoughts on how cats are treated in the Todashian mythos after this motherfucker. (laughs) So, whilst nameless, uh, you know, this cat is on the run. Uh, Drew Barrymore is credited likewise namelessly as Our Girl. And um, she appears to him in a store window, and a bit like Princess Leia basically tells him uh, that she needs his help, and so the cat does exactly what I would do. Uh, it basically fucking tries to ignore her as much as possible and lives through two other random, non-connected story plots before going, saying, eh, fuck it, and going back to save a little girl who doesn't solve problems on her own. Um, because honestly, if she can't fix her own problems, how is she going to be the can opener for him? So I understand his logic. So as the cat makes his way through, you know, to our girl... Um, we get three stories that would be Quitters, The Ledge, and then General. Quitters Incorporated and The Ledge are based on short stories by Stephen King, and the rest were uh, original material for the film. Please read that as um, makeshift sloppy shit, you know, like to stick together two Stephen King stories that work fine on their own, but really shouldn't be... Um, uh, smushed together and then called an anthology. Yeah, yeah. With love to people who call this a great anthology film, I simply do not get it. <laughs> yeah. So like, Quitters stars James Woods as a chain smoker who can't read fine print. Uh, and that really felt like a stretch from his usual roles because uh, he normally plays Hades, Jack Crow, and General Moore in The, in the General's Daughter. Uh, playing someone weak is not really in Woods' bag, and this segment really showcases that. Um, the Ledge is a great filler piece, and if you enjoy that, then I would skip this piece of shit film and go three years backward and watch Ted Danson, Galen Ross, and Leslie Nielsen do the cooler and scarier version of this same concept, also in a Stephen King film uh, and story, in a short called Something to Tide You Over in Creepshow Number 1, which was filmed in 1982. So you would think it was a gigantic loss financially, right? Yeah, uh, one would assume. All right, but the world makes no fucking sense. So the budget <laughs> to box office of, was actually seven million to thirteen million, actually closer to fourteen million, Jesus. meaning that this film 
actually almost doubled its money, which I just, blows my mind. I cannot believe how well this was received. Like, the the lens must be so different. Like, who knows what was going on in 1985? I sure don't. But when this came out, Roger Ebert gave this movie three out of four stars and said, and I quote, Stephen King seems to be working his way through the reference books of human phobias, and Cat's Eye is one of his most effective films. Like... What? Like, which right. phobias are those exactly? Heights, <laughs> cigarettes, and tiny gnomes? Like, right. like I, I'm at a loss. I'm at a loss. Like, not everyone loved it, but audiences clearly did because they kept paying goddamn money for it. And the thing is, if there was like an entire documentary where we had King explaining the subtext, or you know, or or Teague or any of the others. Mm-hmm. I would be like, oh, okay, well, this is where they were coming from. This is what was going on. But when I did my research, and fans, feel free to email us and, you know, set us straight. Mm-hmm. But when I was doing my research, I was like, I can't find clue fucking one as to no, where the no, fuck no. they're pulling their... I mean, I was like, wow. No, let me tell uh, you, because I, 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 I also looked, because... Like, one of the things that we talked about in the watch-along was that there was a lost prologue that was supposed to help explain the way the cat linked everything together. And, like, the studio thought it was too hokey, so against Teague's wishes, they cut it. If you go to the DVD commentary of this movie, he explains what was missing in the prologue. Now, because I do not have the DVD myself, because I'm, it's not the 90s, I'm putting my faith in Felix Vasquez's review of the movie on Cinema Crazed because that is the only person I found to actually describe the cut content. Okay. But the story that he tells is that General the Cat was supposed to have started the movie with another family trying to save their daughter from the little jester troll. He fails somehow, and the girl dies, only for the mother to become convinced that the cat killed her, and then the mother therefore tries to murder General, leading him on his wild escape that starts the movie. Like, once again, Stephen King really doesn't like moms, huh? But seriously, General's, like, heroic arc slash revenge quest makes slightly more sense through that lens especially all the fucking Uh weird ghostly child visions right right but i'm still not gonna say that that would have explained away all the weird shit in the plot of this movie like not even close no no so i guess the other alternative title is the dog ate my homework um (laughs) so cat's eye was directed by lewis teague who was also Mm -hmm. the director of cujo two years previously Mm Uh, King wrote that as well. And we could go off and talk about King's Cujo adventures, but everyone does that. Um, This episode, I think it's really important to acknowledge Louis Teague's importance to the field. Because even if you don't see him as a stellar director to the horror community, his social impact and cinematic presence is undeniable. Because well before Jennifer Kent's Babadook provided us with Noah Wiseman's Samuel, Louis Teague was decades ahead of his time creating celluloid birth control by way of shrieking child and that's always a two-person effort no i mean that seriously Mm -hmm. the other half of that magic was actor danny pintoro playing tad trenton in um in cat's eye um i'm sorry in cujo if you ever want your friends to not i i just want to say two horror fans if you ever want your friends to not have children, or you think they're kind of on the fence about whether they want to be a month kids or whether they want to be a teacher or work around children. Mm-hmm. I implore you, make them watch Cujo and Baba Duke back to back as kind of like the big test because no one will have unprotected sex that night. I guarantee. Maybe someone will wear a Garfield themed crash helmet backwards, but that's oh, about gosh. as far as it's going to go. Um, that's about as much protection as we're going to get. Mm-hmm. So, Um, Safe sex, kids. Safe sex. Still, this film doubled its money. Uh, People have compared Cat's Eye to Creepshow or Tales from the Dark Side. And I don't see that all at all. I don't see that at all in terms of tone or tempo. But hey, if you guys are happy, then I'm happy. We're happy, right? Um, Film was mostly done on location in North Carolina, New Jersey, and New York. And that was also kind of weird um, because, you know, there's all these kings... You know, unless there's a King reference I'm missing to North Carolina, the locations were definitely not unlike Maine. And so I don't understand why they filmed there, but whatever. And because, I mean, unless Christine and Cujo 
were in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. I don't really understand because it never made sense to me like looking at that because you're like, well, no. New Jersey, New Jersey and New York are closer to one another, are closer to Maine than fucking North Carolina is theoretically. Yeah, having so gone see... to all of them, I can tell you it's a hell of a lot of a shorter trip to get to New York. <laughs> right. So I don't know what the hell was going on. Maybe it was a filming, you know, maybe it was a scheduling thing. But I never understood why we didn't even use some main backdrop because usually when whenever we get main filming locations for um, for King films, they're usually you know they're stellar. Like you know, right. anybody who doesn't believe me can go you know look at anything having to do with you know the latest uh, release of of, uh, of it. You know, so in the end, um, the tabby cat saves Drew Barrymore from a hobgoblin jester shithead. Uh, who's been living in her wall, and the cat gets a name, General, and a new family, complete with a murderous matriarch. Uh, happily ever after? I don't fucking know. I'm kind of yeah. like... Yeah. The whole thing still feels like a dick measuring contest at the end with the girl and the mother trying to mutually blackmail each other into either allowing or disallowing this cat to stay after it saved her life and then also swearing this child to secrecy to never tell anybody about the threat to her life that she went through. Like, the ending does not stick it either. Right. It's also something where I turn to the critics and I go, did you have something you wanted to say about moms who secretly try to kill their daughters? Right. Right. Mr. Ebert, you know, would you, would you like to, would you like to write about that a bit? No, Uh, I don't understand where you're coming from. I don't understand what the fuck you're talking about. And there's a lot of times where I find that they're professional. I meet a lot of professional critics where they really sugarcoat things. This is one of those times where I sat there and I went, okay, so like, what was it? Like, did they just not really watch it and just gave it a rubber stamp pass? But it's like, he's, you know, King is making big social commentaries. It's like, mm, I think that's kind of a stretch this time. I felt like what I really feel like is this is, and I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this whole bullshit at the end of our, of our segment where I always say, if you like this movie, then watch these <laughs> other films. Mm-hmm. Here's here's what I will say about Sleepwalkers and Cat's Eye. Sleepwalkers and Cat's Eye are basically good glue for if you're like doing a Stephen Kingathon yeah. and you're like I've run out of Stephen King movies and somehow Maximum Overdrive isn't doing it and you know it's like it's 4 a.m. and I need something to keep them awake. So, like, these would be the, you know, these would be the, the pieces I pick. Uh, I like Sleepwalkers infinitely more, and we'll get to that course, in a second. Yeah. Right, yeah. And, um, but for all the wrong reasons. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, like, I will say that, that Cat's Eye is a, is a great filler piece if you mm-hmm. like Stephen King themed movies yeah it's I, also a good thing that you can tune the fuck out of and hop back in at any moment yeah. like it's background it's a no-brainer for, for sure. sure for sure it's a no-brainer yeah. it's definitely a no-brainer yeah <laughs> yeah sleepwalkers uh oh wait be... no i have more to oh, say no, about she it. has things to say i have more to say um <laughs> so so first cat facts number one I discovered that they actually used 12 cats for the filming of this. Oh, I feel that explains so much. It, it absolutely does. Like, for instance, the incredibly inconsistent acting of the cat. But, you know, that this is how movies are made. But I feel so bad for whichever the one cat was that had to be in the electric cage. Like, we discussed, <laughs> it did not get electrocuted. It was air puffs. But still, like the other cats are like, go in the carrier. Go out of the carrier. Chase the little toy. And then the one cat is like, hey, would you like to come into the torture chamber today, buddy? Like, uh, what the fuck? <laughs> um, hope he got good treats after that. Me too. It actually reminded me a little bit of a movie called Bowfinger, where Eddie Murphy plays... Eddie Murphy always plays multiple characters, or usually Mm -hmm. plays multiple characters. So he plays himself as a douchebag Scientologist Mm -hmm. actor, and he also plays himself as a struggling actor trying to make it in the business who looks a lot like the douchebag Scientologist actor. So they make him do all the terrible stunts, uh, and, and yeah, it's terrible. And so I was like, I was thinking about Eddie Murphy the whole time when I was watching that cat like pop around the room. I was like, oh my God, why? I was like, this cat's name should be Kit. 
So, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, speaking of Scientology, like that rabbit hole, my God, I, I'm just going to say <laughs> as a side wreck, there's some this guy on Twitch, Harry's Horror Show, his channel, so interesting, does a lot of true crime stuff. But a few nights ago, he covered um, some stuff on Scientology. Going down the rabbit hole of Tom Cruise's descent into Scientology, oh, yeah. a fascinating evening to spend. So just, you know, if you're looking for extra media, check it out because, my God, I was sitting there like, what? And I've been focused on the middle tooth all this time and not thinking about this bullshit. <laughs> fascinating. I digress. So I also tried to find more info on that old myth of cats stealing baby's breath, because like yeah. I said, it's not a new one. My no. great grandmother recounted this tale in horror when my when she found out that my mom had adopted a cat off the street when I was a baby. And she was like, you're going to kill your child. <laughs> and my mother put absolutely no faith in that. And I had a very loving and happy relationship with Kong the cat until she died many, many years later. But I had lots of happy years of using her as a pillow in the interim. But I didn't find a ton of concrete info on this. It's it's this kind of sketchy wives it's tale that's been passed down. Yeah. yeah, but the earliest written record that I could find mention of this is um it's from 19 sorry, from 1791 when a coroner's inquest in Plymouth, England found a cat guilty of breath-sucking baby murder, which is honestly unsurprising given everything I've learned to expect from the old-timey justice system, but <laughs> I cannot imagine what that courtroom trial must have been like. Just a little kitty on the stand. Like, did you suck the breath out of this baby? Did you commit a murder, Mr. Tittles? Um, then the, I think... She's probably like a snuggly little kitty. I know! It's like, meow! <laughs> I know, absolutely. Like, the only... Every time you look this up, it'll be people being like, well, I guess if the cat cuddled too much and sat on the baby's face, it could stop the baby no, breathing. But nobody has any evidence years. for that happening. Yeah, I'm like, yes. I'm not going to say that cat sleeping on your face is improbable because I've seen it happen. However... <laughs> but cats are normally really protective of the things that they're with. Uh-huh. They're also made of fluff. <laughs> like, <laughs> you can breathe through well, it. Well, it depends on the size of the cat. If we're talking about, like, a regular house cat, that's one thing. If we're talking about a fucking Maine Coon, it's more or less like it could but, be a fucking Pokemon. Okay. But okay? typically, the bigger the cat, the more the fluff, which means the more aeration. That's true. Mm-hmm. Unless the baby is allergic to cats. Mm, okay, yeah, but that's a whole different ball game to And that would be with. epileptic shock. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, Which, you if know, we're counting... If you're a responsible fucking parent, you should test for should anyway. Check. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say yes. That is the one situation in which a cat could literally steal a baby's breath is through anaphylactic shock. A cat, a dog, shellfish, fucking right. hay fever, pollen, name a fucking thing. Exactly. My poor sister who discovered the hard way when she tried to go to horseback riding lessons that she's allergic to horse spit. That was a fun one. <laughs> yeah. So. But my last my last exercise for Cat's Eyes, I think together we should try to brainstorm some ways that could have made this incoherent script work. First, I think most obviously General simply should have been in a different movie because with much love to Steven, you could have shown me that segment and told me that it was a Disney Channel original movie and I would have <laughs> believed you. So, like, Steven should just lean into it and make a full kids movie or anthology a la Goosebumps and give a whole bunch of child actors their start in horror and a lot of puppeteers and character actors a hefty paycheck. Kind of. Okay, so I'm with you there, but I would actually be more like, you know how we have Bradley Cooper playing Rocket Raccoon in Guardians mm -hmm, of the mm -hmm, Galaxy? Mm -hmm. Yes. Right? So... There is a, you know, that's a serious take on what appears to be a cute animal. I mean, I really would have had, actually, Stephen King would be perfect for it because Stephen King always has this, I don't want to fucking be responsible kind of attitude to a lot of his roles, right? So I could totally see him being like, there's a little girl going, please, you have to save me. Uh, can opener says, what? <laughs> like, I totally see him being... Lady, what? I could totally see him. Lady, what the fuck are you bothering me for? Yeah, lady, listen, we all got problems, okay? Leave me alone and stop bothering me. Yeah, and I think you want to like, go back to our Ryan Reynolds vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> 
I could totally see him, but I could totally see King doing that yes. back then even. And I don't, I, it probably would have opened the door. I mean, it's not like he needed the money or anything, but I could totally see it opening the door to more voice acting work for him and all sorts of other things. True. Like now, whether he wanted to do that or not is another question entirely. Yeah. Yeah. But I definitely think that having the cat have a monologue, have it played by like, because, you know, look who's talking with John Travolta and Michael J. Fox and Chris Alley. That definitely proved that the world was ready for that sort of film. Um, and that was not the first of its kind. Um, I definitely think that it's a good idea. I just think that um, the cat should have been more in the like. The cat was technically involved. Mm -hmm. The problem was the cat was involved in a series of fucking off-screen shots. Right. And the those off-screen shots are boring as shit. The cat never developed a character either. Like, right. it's not like the cat had a lot of agency. The cat was thrown around until it was like, oh, uh, fight a troll, the end. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, and even then, it would have been awesome. It would have been like, haha, finally some action, you know? Right. Or yeah. even then, he could have even been telling his, he could have even been the monologue, sort of Sin City style, telling his backstory mm -hmm. as he was going through the whole back thing. And it's like, yeah, yeah you might like, be wondering why I'm out here in Shitsville. It's because, you know, there was this shithead troll. And then, like, when he gets to Maine, mm -hmm. finds the fact that the shithead troll, that there's another shithead troll. I kind of like that idea. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not usually a talking animal fan, but talking like internal monologue, animal narrator, Much, I could I, I could that. vibe with that. I, I also it. I could also see it working better if we doubled down on the tiny trolls. Like it would make so much more sense to me if the thing hiding in the smoker's closet was a little troll instead right. of, you know, a grown adult man. And then right. instead of pigeons pecking at the guy's feet on the side of the building, could be a tiny stabby goblin, like eh, that's weaker. But we could just replace the with a more exciting story anyway and then right. have the whole thing be more troll centric so that's right. a continuing thread alternately more character crossover so like instead of making the ledges antagonist a gambler make it the dude who's in charge of quitters inc and he I mean, sets the challenge as a punishment for a client precisely. could be that fifth failure which could explain why his lady needed to be beheaded that's then, one reason. Right. The smoker dude could be Drew Barrymore's dad, so we actually care about having terrible things happen to the child, which right. again would make even more sense as to why the troll would be targeting the child if that was a punishment from Quitters Inc. who employed tiny trolls. Right. Bring it all full circle. Right. So maybe, maybe it was a, you know, who knows? Like, I'm sure that there's a... The thing is, I don't really believe that any studio ever sets out to lose money. It's actually kind of like the first thing is like, at least I hope. Um, so, yeah, for me, what you just said works perfectly. I think that those things are perfectly logical explanations as to what would have worked better for, you know, future plot lines. I also feel that the mother character at the end oh was there is actually another cat in the Stephen King mythos where it's the cat from hell. And I think we're going to get there eventually. I don't want to spoil it too much ahead of time. But there's a cat from hell. And it's not really a cat from hell. It's more or less a mutated cat. Mm -hmm. And it's something in the vein of what we would call Dean Kuntz's, Dean Kuntz's Watchers. It has a similarity there in terms of its spirit. And so I feel that there's a lot of potential there. Uh, for those sorts of stories, I've definitely, you know, after watching movies like that, I've written my own, although mine are a bit more somber. Um, you know, I think that those films could work. I think that it, it, we should have more animals in horror for sure. I think that the monologue thing would help. I just think that the, um, I think that the one thing that was, that kind of really sucked about this film is that you didn't have enough of a connection to the mythos other than these passing references. Like, to have, you know, it was like a fart in the beginning. It's like, Cujo, Christine, oh boom, gone. And then it's like, Kitty goes running. And you're like, well, no, that's not really how Stephen King's world works. The Toad Ash is a, is a real organism. It's, you know, and, and you know, I mean... 
don't worry, because what's going to happen is, in case you fans are like, oh my god, Mona and Axis are shitting on this, don't worry. What's going to happen is, this is all going to get rebooted in another 30, 40 years, mm -hmm. like when me and Axis are either in the ground or on our way to the ground. Please, what's gonna I'll end be up glorious and immortal, don't worry. That's true. When I'm very happily in the ground or mm -hmm. on my way to the ground... Um, what's going to end up happening is there's going to be a reboot of all of Stephen King's stuff. I guarantee you that. Um, where fans don't have to really guess too much anymore. Like, for me, as a, as a fan of Stephen King, I'm kind of shocked that most of you haven't really realized that um, Bill Skarsgård's character is technically Pennywise's mate. And that you guys, like, keep thinking that he's, like, one thing or another thing. No, no, that's Pennywise's mate. And if you guys, like, read the fucking mythos, you'd know that. But, like, you know. And then time it's for like, Motor to yell at the audience. This is yeah, my favorite part. <laughs> it's the, yeah, it's like, there are times where I just sit there and I'm like, wow. It's like, the fans love the stuff, but the fans don't pay a lot of attention to the stuff. Okay, cool. So, um, don't worry. It's going to be remade. It's going to be rebooted. Um... There's probably going to be a much more solid, um, you know, string of plot, you know, linking mm -hmm. everything together. And it'll be a great blast, you know. And yeah. so don't worry. Yeah, because it's, it's going to come back. Hardcore. Yeah, Mona, if it happens after you die, I'll be sure to bring a tablet and play it over your grave. No, please don't. <laughs> Fine, I'll let you rest in peace. Because if, if you do that, then King's going to be sitting next to me at my grave being like, see, I got redemption. I'm like, shut up. <laughs> I like that you expect Stephen King to outlive you. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Duly noted. I'm glad we're writing it all out ahead of time. So can um, we move to Sleepwalkers? Or yeah. Gonna... Yeah. Let's talk about Sleepwalkers because I like that in this movie, Stephen took the cat steel breath myth and really took it to the next level by saying, yes, yes and... What if it was purple and weirdly horny? Right. Sleepwalkers, 1992. So Sleepwalkers, not to be confused with the one we'll be seeing in the upcoming Doctor Strange 2 Multiverse of Madness. Um, in this one, we follow a son and mother played by Brian Krause and Alice Krieg, respectively. They are what are known as Sleepwalkers, a group of shape-shifting werecats that feed on life force of virgins to stay alive. Um, and then they fuck one another in purple horny sex magic. Uh, yeah. Um, Twin Peaks actress and god I'm sorry, Twin Peaks actress and goddess Machen Amick plays opposite Krause as Tanya Robertson, who is the intended human prey for the mother-son pair, and by pair I mean they fuck. Um box office to budget on this one is 15 to 30 million once again doubling their money although this time i totally get it the cast yeah, on this is more well fucking deserved. crazy ron perlman clive barker john landis dan martin yeah dan martin who's been playing a police officer since forever right mark and hamill Sparky just shows up for 30 seconds for fun and then leaves. and you're just like yeah martin's here and then you're like somebody john wick dan somebody 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 john wick dan martin what the fuck <laughs> Um, and then like, you know, again, would have been awesome if you had that internal monologue again. Like I would have loved to hear the cat go, please shut the fuck up while he was singing. Oh my and God. I would have also loved, I would have also loved, loved to have watched the cat like stand over, over Dan Martin's dead body and be like, by grab Thar's hammer, you will be avenged, you know? And like, <laughs> by oh, every motherfucker Lewis. I know on Altar, I am going to get you some vengeance. You know? Yeah, though I like to think that in some ways Clovis the Cat is a spiritual successor to General and that it's Clovis, a tabby with oh. a lot more agency. Like, Clovis actually... Clovis does not talk, and I am okay with that. I, again, in my stance against talking animals in movies right. for the most part. However, like... There's just so much more of a clear thread of Clovis doing exactly what the fuck Clovis wants to do that I appreciate. So while yeah. General just traipses through his movie pretty aimlessly, this is a Clovis-driven movie. He's like, Clovis has his own B-plot that you know he is doing this whole goddamn time. And I appreciate that. I, I would like the Clovis view story of Sleepwalkers. I think that the thing that kind of blows me away about it is overall you know my my non-apologetic 
complete embracement of of the incest between <laughs> Alice Krieg and Krause, notwithstanding, uh-huh. which I was... You can listen to the commentary. I won't put anyone through that again. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure there'll be stuff he edited out and just trust there was Probably more. not. Probably not. <laughs> I'll make it even dirtier if I can. I'm going to be a little heavy into Great. the microphone. Um, um, the thing that kind of really blew me away was something interesting about putting the two together. Um, putting Cat's Eye and Sleepwalkers together. Which is that Clovis made me really think about Stephen King's Todashian realm and how generous cats must be to humans in King's world. Because if I knew that I was a species that was going to get mass murdered by sleepwalkers mm-hmm. and then have to deal with the can openers being mean to me, gassing me, taking me... I mean, literally, that's what happens to cats that get picked up off the street. They gas strays, right? Mm-hmm. They kill them. They mass murder them. There's no, like, let's find them a home, usually, right? They, we try to do that now. Keep going. No, what, what was that? No, I'm just Googling something. <laughs> oh, okay. Knowing that cats get mass murdered by human beings, you know, um, off the street, and then looking at the fact that, um, yeah, that this, that this, that these cats still go out of their way to protect human beings really blows me away. And I, I find that to be... See, there is a thing about Stephen King with animals that, that people don't really talk about. I think that the most important animal that's not discussed is Matoran, which is the sea turtle that, it, that technically created the universe in, in, um, in the Dark Tower series. And, mm-hmm. and my wife loves sea turtles, so I naturally know a lot about Maturin. <laughs> and when they meet Maturin... He is technically speaking either Pennywise's brother or cousin. And he's kind of like, he's the cutest thing you've ever seen. He's gigantic like Gamora. But it's like, I'm sorry, I had a tummy ache and then I threw up the world and the universe. Please don't be mad at me. This is really fun. I've got to say, as somebody who is a very casual consumer of Stephen King content, everything you're saying just sounds utterly depraved. Please keep going. (laughs) Then you haven't heard of the ritual of Chud. So, um... So the thing with uh, Matoran is that it's it's really amazing because there is something that King does preserve between the two films, and whether it's intentional or not that it's preserved within the films, I can't really say for sure. But it's the concept that an animal's existence is much more pure than a human being's, and mm-hmm. like when you look at Cujo, um, even though the the film, like I made a joke earlier about it, but the but the thing is that. Cujo is the victim and and the and the antagonist technically speaking actually he's not technically the antagonist at all he's the byproduct monster of of and he's he's an involuntary antagonist mm-hmm. in in terms of the story um if you look at at these cats they're still rolling out of bed to go save the fuck ups that right. are the human beings cuz you'll notice that the cats may be the see the cats may attack the sleepwalkers but the cats don't seem to get jack shit from attacking a sleepwalker it's not like you eat a sleepwalker and your dick grows three times the size of a normal it's not like you become a human being and you get more food it's not like you get some sort of major benefit added to your 401k for eating a sleepwalker and saving a human you don't get that you still get kicked and spit on and gassed mm-hmm. so what i find amazing about about the about the link between general and clovis and the rest of the gang is that they're doing it because they're trying to protect the humans and there is there's a really beautiful thing about that and that's kind of the thing that i love about king's world and you know like i'll you know i'll joke about the films but behind all of that the the subtext the you know, the, what, what lays behind all of that is this beautiful, you know, um, moment where there's there's kind of purity to the universe. And you see that where um, even though they're antagonists, there are good guys, too. And you don't always see that mm-hmm. in the horror world. Yeah, um, absolutely. 
right? In The Shining 1 and 2, we had Scatman Carruthers' um, um, uh, Mr. Halloran. And, uh, I'm sorry, Dick Halloran. And Dick Halloran, you know, um, if you've read the movies or the books, spoilers either way, you know, uh, Dick basically, oh, you know, took care of Danny. Yeah. And he had no obligation to do so. He had no obligation to risk his life or sacrifice his life or anything like that. And so there's this, there's this kind of like beauty to the universe and a purity to the universe that you would really only see or that I've rarely seen in any other universe but King's. And it actually makes me feel very... um, Because I I give King a lot of flack. I do. (laughs) Right? He's No, the reason why is because he's a kid who grew up on Westerns. I felt like he wasn't somebody who was pure darkness. No. But, like, the thing that I love about him is... I really get, as a writer, I get a lot of Clint Eastwood out of him as the man with no name. Um, or or these other kind of like take a stand kind of characters where they're like, I'm not running for you. You know, I'm not running from you at all. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. And so yeah, I there's... think that, that makes sense. Like there needs to be some bounds for that. Like I know I have, I'm sure I've said on the podcast before that like, I'm somebody, I do not want to watch media that is just depressing. Like, because I watch a ton of, like, murder mysteries and whatnot. But if it's just all dull and drab and dark and depressing, like, I am out. I want to fucking die. Like, that's an awful time. Like, I will not watch a mystery, a murder show, whatever. It can be dark as hell. But if there are friends in it, if there are people who like each other, the stakes are raised. There are people to care about. I suddenly care. And this is the ethos that I think Stephen King brings to stuff where he understands that there needs to be these moments of hope, these moments of connection to actually add stakes and make you care about stuff. So it's not just a slog of terrible thing after terrible thing after terrible thing. Like that's there. But there needs to be the balance to create yes. a more nuanced universe that survives beyond just one little vignette of darkness. Correct. I agree. And yeah. I think that that's just what it is. I think that's what it is about both films where there is an incredible amount of darkness. Mm-hmm. But the the thing is that the cats themselves, although you know relatively poorly organized, um, are are interesting. I actually think right. that the, the one thing that I really like about the incestuous relationship <laughs> is no, I don't mean that seriously. The one thing, <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I mean I mm-hmm. love. Yes, no, keep going. No, I'm not. No, I love Alice. Okay, so I love Alice Krieg's body, <laughs> and I, I find it's a. I find her look. I look. I found her look back then was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, we know you're hot for Alice Krieg. You can go to your and, actual and, point. And Grace Jones too is the same reason. I, it's, a, mm-hmm. it's a body type. Um, there's just you know incredible beauty. Um, but the the way that I feel about it is that um, when we look at Krieg's relationship with Krause and the fact that there's such attachment. I feel like they are monsters for the most part of the time, but these are sympathetic monsters. Yes. Whereas when we when we compare that to Cat's Eye, we don't really have sympathetic monsters, right? Even fucking look, Christine and I, let's blow them. Let's knock them down one by one. Christine's a woman at the end of the day, even though we see mm-hmm. her for two seconds. Christine at the end of the day is a woman who is lonely. Cujo is, you know, a victim of rabies and a very neglectful, shitty owner, yeah. right? The the cat is is also the victim of neglect. The 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 monsters are the fucking humans. Like Quitters Incorporated, mm-hmm. those guys are fucking monsters. Even James Wood, uh, James Woods is a fucking monster. Being a chain smoker and then being like mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to smoke this anyway, even though it might, like, get my wife hurt or killed. Yeah. It's a fucking monster. Yeah, absolutely. The humans you know, are the darkness. <laughs> the humans are the fucking problem. Right. So yeah. I actually agree with that. And, you know, most, most, you know, I've known, you know, I've met a lot of people who are like, 
oh, you're a tree hugger. You're that. Yeah, I've heard a lot of stupid shit come out of people's mouths over my lifetime. But the thing is, if you sit with like hunters who've really hunted for and you know out of necessity mm-hmm. and not out of like and not you know to go kill a lion and mount it on the wall, there's a lot of hunters who are also going, yeah, we're the problem, not the solution. <laughs> so there's a uh-huh. lot of times where I sit there and I go, mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah, get this movie. Sure. Yeah, but. Also, I want to I want to go back because for their connections, both for the cat as protector and for the incest thing, if we come back to ancient Egypt, because in the beginning of Sleepwalkers, they flash through all of these pseudo historical mm-hmm. images and there are brief snippets of Egyptian stuff, which I find really interesting because I spent like a lot of my issues with this movie about are about negotiating the difference between cats and the sleepwalkers and the disconnect there which i don't Mm. think is really clearly established and that is my tripping point but like one of the egyptian things that they reference is bast or bastet who is the Mm -hmm. goddess of protection and literally uh, the bringer of good health so you have a cat that was a stand-in for protection of humans that was literally her role was to protect people so you see the actual cats carrying on this tradition in Sleepwalkers and in Cat's Eye of these cats being the protectors for the humans who need it. It's Which is very cute when you think about, like, cats bringing you a dead thing because they think you can't hunt for yourself. Like, they're still like, you fucking dumbasses. Like, gotta do everything for you from killing cats to <laughs> to bringing right. you dinner, which I That's think is the very cats- sweet. And cats actually rightly perceive us that way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're big, dumb kittens who don't have claws. (laughs) We think we take care of them. They think they take care of us. We're both probably a little bit right. Right. Um, But it's weird, then, that the sleepwalkers did not carry on this tradition. Instead, they eat people and stand in opposition to the cats when Bastet was a human cat. So... Things that's are weird a, there. If you ask me, that's kind of a religious motif, right? Yes, there's always yes. the one that fell in, there's always the one that the one that does True. what they're supposed to do, and the one that goes, Why the fuck am I listening to you again? <laughs> right? Yeah, that's so honestly, of, if you think of the sleepwalkers as like the fallen angels of the right. cat world, like things make more sense. Right. But then Or Medusa again, and if, Athena. Mm-hmm. There's all there's tons and tons of there's tons sure. and tons of that relationship gone wrong. Yeah, exactly. So if you think about it that way, like if you explored more of that backstory, I think things would be more plausible. Yeah. But ancient Egypt is also a huge model for incest. When you look at pharaohs and these people who thought they were representations of the gods, they thought the way to keep those bloodlines pure was through incest. That wasn't limited to the pharaohs that kept going. It sure did. It sure did. And like, but especially in the case of these kind of high up people who thought they were of purer blood than the average stock. It was all about keeping the bloodline pure by sleeping with your sister or your mom, which tracks like, and I think in sleepwalkers in some kind of ways they paint it as something out of necessity because they're, they keep making these illusions of trying to find more sleepwalkers and they can't find any and they're acting like they're the only two left and they're trying to preserve the bloodline or something. Even though we never see them trying for a baby. We see them fucking, but there's never any like, man, I wish I could have a brother from good old Charles. A brother slash son. Um, thankfully. Yeah, you're kind of a Sith uh, kind of thing. There's a rule of two sort of Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah, I guess that's true, too. Like, would have made they... the Emperor and Darth Vader's relationship a lot more interesting. Oh, Especially Jesus. since that's technically his grandpa. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. So all of this tracks. Like, mm-hmm. and I also... Like I said, I couldn't really get over the fact that sleepwalkers hate cats since they literally are cat people. Like, I know family reunions can be awkward, but at least try to get along. No, fallen angels and angels are totally like... Again, thinking about it from that dynamic, yes. Before we made that illusion, I was... more annoyed (laughs) i think a lot about like american horror story season two where there's a moment where one angel sees sees a fallen angel within a nun and he goes cousin and she goes you are no cousin of mine and you're Mm -hmm. just like yeah 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 yeah, no we are not related anymore and so they clearly have their issues but then i was thinking about like other shapeshifters other animal human shapeshifters for comparison so like 
I, I like I did some cursory. I started as research. Unsurprisingly, there's not a ton of um, hard and fast uh, information on the mythical creatures. So some of it turns into my own personal theory. But so first I thought about do werewolves and dogs get along? It results inconclusive. But actual wolves and dogs communicate really well with minor dialectical differences. So my logical leap here is that werewolves would also be better adapted for communicating with dogs better than your average human, which would probably result in more nuanced relationships. So perhaps it's not a universally positive like werewolves like dogs, but I think I could see them interacting with dogs on a more one-to-one -one interpersonal basis like they do with people. That seems like a possibility. I think that it's actually simpler than that. Um, I think it's a corruptive element that, that the animal can sense, and I think it has less to do with good and bad, right and wrong. I think it has to do with what side of the board you're standing on. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of people try and, again, this is when we're talking about anything with the supernatural, things enter really big gray areas, even though we like to make them into, you know, it's, it's either good oh, or course. bad. And so, like, there are times where, you know, there are werewolf stories where, you know, dogs growl at, at the wolves while right. they're or the werewolves while they're in human form. Um, and what it is is, I would assume it has nothing to do with the wolf itself. Because one more time, just like the cats here, it's not that they're being affected by mm -hmm. the they're not being affected at all. Well, they perceive something like if no, you go, they perceive corruption within. They perceive the corruption within within what's in their environment. I think one good example of that would be, and this is an RPG thing, um, uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse, the presence mm -hmm. of the worm and the, what are called the Black Spiral Dancers. And they were, are essentially a corruption of the earth, they're a corruption of nature. And so the other werewolves are like, these guys gotta go. Mm -hmm. And then, and that, it actually makes a lot of sense. Like xenophobia is kind of a thing in some stories and then other times it's a corruption element that where they're trying to you know trying to make it so that this particular that the existence of this particular type of creature doesn't pollute their environment sure and so yeah like if you look at beholders from dungeons and dragons those are the first things i thought of with sleepwalkers and cats where you know cats don't really like humans humans don't really like cats Right, but fuck it, these sleepwalkers have gotta go. If you look at beholders, they're incredibly xenomorph, uh, xenophobic. You know, they're the most xenophobic fucking race, and it's done on purpose. It's because they're so powerful, they got all these fucking eyes, and then the minute another one that's like just the wrong shade or the you know doesn't have the right stalks on its head, mm -hmm. they immediately try killing that thing, and you're like, okay. That well, makes but sense. I think the, sure. the idea of like territorial kind of stuff comes into play with the idea that like I talked about because again, if you ha take wolves and dogs into account, yeah. like if you have a wild wolf meet a domestic dog, there's some inherent skepticism in there. Like it has yeah. to be under very specific circumstances for it to go well because the two are so disconnected at this point that you know if a chihuahua sees a wolf they will understand it's a predator and the wolf will see some tapas. But <laughs> if you have them in a more controlled environment, especially if a wolf is separated from its pack or if it's not in a territorial environment, like one-on-one, -on -one, then they can totally interact. If you get them when they're young, they play like they're puppies because they share a common language. But sure. part of it depends on negotiating territory and bonding. And, yeah, bonding, territory, and negotiating like who if somebody's a threat it's all about threat analysis yeah. and figuring that out well because you've seen lots of um, by now they're all over instagram and tiktok is like if you go online you're gonna see lots of baby animals that are natural predators to one another and they're oh, fucking hanging all over you know they're like playing with one another taking care of one another making sure that the other one's okay it kind of shows that like um you know there's there's just a 
uh, it actually is an interesting lesson where you see, like, oh, if you grew up around it, then it's normal to Right, you. of course. That's socialization right? is nurture. responsible for a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Now, unsurprisingly, I, of course, had to also think about vampires and bats because we know yeah. I love both. Results, again, generally inconclusive because depending on your lore, vampires, of course, can be bats. So for utility, that's what we're talking about in this instance. We're talking about shape-shifting vampires that turn into bats. Now... Again, depending on your lore source, you might have different complications. For instance, if you're pulling from the Terry Pratchett canon, where a vampire can turn into a lot of bats to account for mass, your standard bat might be confused by encountering a colony of bats functioning as a singular hive mind entity. But if we simplify things and take it to just vampire bat behavior specifically, the common vampire bat is actually one of the most social bat species around, and they're highly cooperative. Vampire bats even roost in colonies with other bat species. So basically, if they treated a vampire in bat form like another bat, unless a vampire actually directly threatened the females of the colony, it yep. seems very likely that the bats would be super down to hang. Like, yes. bats do not care if humans show up. They do not care if other bats show up. They're like, as long as we're vibing, we're vibing. Right. So whether the vampires are as polite as the bats are is TBD, but if you're going vintage Drax style where vamps can control animals, it also seems like they'd be down to have more minions. So I'm very much of the mind that vampires and bats maintain a pretty cozy relationship for the most part. Mm -hmm. like, I think so, the two of them do well. And to put a finer point on this then, a much finer point on this, yeah. when everybody's talking about sleepwalkers and they're saying that it's a vampire story, it's a specific type. It's an energy vampire story. Right. Which right. this actually comes a lot closer to life force than it I does. I was going to say it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, right down to sucking out weird glow from people's mouths. Um, sex. <laughs> sex. <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. Like both incredibly horny movies. Um, due it's to great. Another slurping quite, like, up life force through a boba straw. Um <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I really I would like to see the evolution of this movie where instead of just like hovering over somebody's mouth and like <laughs> like you're you know the, the little vacuum cleaner on Teletubbies I would like the version where the energy vampires carry around big straws and punch everybody like they're a Capri sun bag just chunk and go for it <laughs> I think that would be fun um, also since of course I love talking about mythology I did a general kind of look into werecats to see if I could find any information mm -hmm. historically and across and cross-culturally about again their relationship with the old standard cat and I didn't find much but I did right. learn that practically every culture in the world has werecat myths yes so just a brief kind of overview because there are a lot of them they're cool I'm just continent by continent um yeah Go. Oh, okay. Go, go, you look like you wanted to say no, something. No, I'm like mortified because I'm like, oh, God, we're going to do this one. Because I'm like, I, I actually can do this in my head, too. I'm like, no. <laughs> go ahead. No, no. We're keeping it super simple over you. But European folklore have werecats that were humans transforming into either domestic cats or panthers. Um, and they were all considered to be witches. Pretty much everything that was poorly understood was, it's a witch! And they were naturally prosecuted during the witch trials. And probably all it took was, you know, having an errant bit of fluff on your clothes and an angry neighbor starting a rumor. So sorry to those folks for uh, your mistreatment. Then if we turn to Africa, my god, there are so many cool legends about were-lions, were-panthers, and were-leopards. Um, and a lot of them were considered to actually be feline gods who merely disguised themselves as human to walk among us, occasionally mate and produce offspring, which might become future shapeshifters depending on, you know, the exact story. Many Asian cultures have legends about were-tigers. That's the most common vein across continental Asia and some of the islands as well. Um, and they're typically doomed to their transformation as the victim of a curse or a malevolent ghost or spirit. They would go on to slaughter livestock and sometimes humans to the point of singular obsession. But interestingly, this is also where we find some of the only positive werecat stories that I found. So Java has this really cool story um, where their version of the were-tiger 
It's something where individuals can learn to transform through spells, charms, willpower, inherited ability, and even determined fasting to turn into a tiger. Mm -hmm. And then they become the protector of the village and their plantation specifically. So they transform at night, watch out over the village. Um, and there is still definitely an animalistic element. It's the kind of thing where like, they don't recognize people unless they call them by name, but they still, they don't hurt people. They're entirely a protector fill, uh, protector figure. Um, and the Khans in India also believe in a similar kind of friendly were tiger, but theirs uses their power only for vengeance on their enemies, which still a little dark, but they seem to be on board with it. It can turn into like a, a hero kind of arc in, in their folklore. Then when you get to the Americas, we know that pre-Columbian Mesoamerican cultures loved a were-jaguar. The Aztecs had entire groups of specialized jaguar warriors who wore the skins of jaguars to try to harness their powers. Um, this also showed up in priesthoods and religious groups across the continent. Um, and both jaguars and were-jaguars are one of the most common recurring themes across ancient Mesoamerican art. They look sick and like it makes perfect sense in all of these cases to find one of the apex predators in your ecosystem which these large cats are and to kind of have these these stories about harnessing the power sharing them that kind of it can sometimes be about capturing that power for yourself sometimes about the fear of that sometimes about idealizing the intelligence of these creatures the incredible threat that they pose it's an incredibly rich vein for storytelling and folklore and then it's no surprise that when you come to you know today in the united states there's still urban legends about feline bipeds both werecat figures and um cryptozoology kind of figures it continues to this day um also in this research i did find one quick mention of how werecats function in occultism and there was a 19th century occultist named J.C. Street who believed that human bodies are constantly floating in a ethereal fluid, which like, okay. Um, but <laughs> you could force a person's transformation into a cat or dog by manipulating that fluid almost very loosely, like sleepwalkers needing mysterious purple magic goo to fuel their mysterious powers. Now I know it's a stretch, but I bet J.C. Street would have fucking loved this movie. I would have loved to show his 19th century brain this movie, blow it out of the goddamn water, and I hope he would have had a good time. <laughs> what about Yonkai? Yokai and stuff, like, there are definitely, if you look at Japan, there's the, the Bakaneko, yokai, like, all of those kinds of domestic cat myths. Those are less commonly a were-cat situation. It's more commonly, like, there is a cat spirit. Sometimes they turn into human, but it kind of, it functions in a lot of ways as a different vein of mythology. Like, people don't tend to group it with were-cat mythos, from what I found, but there's definitely that, too. Yeah, so if you're looking for some way to direct all of this, um, all of the violence towards cats this month into something more positive in honor of General and Clovis, it's a great time to check out if your local shelters need anything. Um, and especially, you know, if you're listening to this in the contemporary timeline and not years down the road, and if you are, hey, but... Um, <laughs> we It's been a funny time where a lot of pet, pets got adopted at the beginning of pandemic there was a huge kind of outpouring of support for shelters for foster pets and it's kind of petered out over time and a lot of some pets have gotten returned all this to say shelters could use an assist right about now so look into your local animal shelters they're always accepting donations they're accepting volunteers it's pretty much a guarantee that there's a way that you can help out um and it's really rewarding. It's something that I do. I used to do growing up as a kid is I would always go help out at my local shelter, which for the most part meant that my mom cleaned litter boxes while I played with kittens. So I thought it was a grand old time, but, but rewarding across the board. Um, walk dogs, hang out with cats, socialize animals, and just be a body to help out where people need it. So aside from that, hope you enjoyed yourself. This was a grand old time for me. Happy cat month. <laughs> Happy Cat Month! We'll see you guys next time. And stay tuned for the horror news with Amanda Headley. Bye! Bye! Hi everyone! 
It's hard to believe how quickly February passed us by. It seems like only yesterday it was New Year's Day. We're on the cusp of spring, and hopefully, March comes in like a lazy, well-fed lion who can't even be bothered to roar. I, for one, am over this dark and bleak winter. Cheers to an early spring. We have a great submission call lineup in this episode, and some are even paying pro rates. Here is your chance to fix your least favorite horror trope. Brandon Applegate will be opening a submission call on April 1st for his anthology, It Was All a Dream, an anthology of bad horror tropes done right. He's looking for a well-worn, overused, and predictable horror trope that will be turned on its head or is bizarre enough to frighten and surprise. Stories must be between 1,500 and 4,000 words, and the submission call is between April 1st until April 30th, 2022. An extended submission window is open exclusively for LGBTQIA+, BIOPC, and marginalized writers from May 1st to May 7th, 2022. To read the full submission guidelines, visit https colon forward slash forward slash b-a-p-p-l-e-g-a-t-e dot com forward slash it dash was dash all dash a dash dream dash submission dash guidelines. Cohesion Press is looking for weird Western horror for their snafu Dead or Alive anthology. Stories are to be action-based horror set in the wild, wild west. Think of Westworld, Cowboys and Aliens, Bone Tomahawk for films, or The Crossings by Jack Ketchum, or Skin Medicine by Tim Curran for writings. Story work count is between 2,000 and 10,000 words, and the deadline to submit is March 31st, 2022. For more information, visit https colon forward slash forward slash cohesionpress.com forward slash snafu dash submissions. Dark Matter Magazine is open for submissions for their new horror anthology, Human Monsters. They want stories that are dark, psychological, thrilling, dangerous, gothic, strange, and ugly tales of people doing bad things to one another. They are not looking for cosmic, paranormal, science fiction, cryptid, or supernatural tales. Just monsters in human skin. Story length is to be between 2,000 and 4,000 words, and the deadline to submit is March 15th, 2022. For submission guidelines, visit https colon forward slash forward slash darkmattermagazine.com forward slash submission dash guidelines forward slash human dash Monsters Dash Anthology. Death Knell Press has released a submission teaser for an upcoming anthology called Nightmare Sky, a collection of night sky horror. Full submission guidelines will be released in March 2022, so keep an eye out on Death Knell Press's website and social media platforms for the open call announcement. For more information, visit https forward slash forward slash deathnellpress.com forward slash 2022 forward slash 02 forward slash 13 forward slash upcoming dash submission dash tease. Eric Raglan has an open submission call for his new anthology, Shredded. This anthology will feature stories of body horror in sports and fitness. Submit your most grotesque, strange, frightening, and thought-provoking stories with complex characters and unapologetic weirdness.
Stories should be between 2,000 and 4,500 words. And the submission window is now open between March 1st and March 31st, 2022. You can find out more information on this anthology at https forward slash forward slash E-R-I-C-R-A-G-L-I-N dot com forward slash 2021 forward slash 12 forward slash 16 forward slash shredded dash a dash sports dash and dash fitness dash body dash horror dash anthology. The submission window is now open for Journal Stone Publishing's Hell Notes Anthology, Azathoth, Ordo Ab Chow, which is Latin for Order Out of Chaos. This is a first in a series of anthologies focusing on each of the Lovecraftian gods featured in the gods of H.P. Lovecraft. This first anthology must include Azathoth in some shape or form. Furthermore, some aspect of the story must include the theme Order Out of Chaos. Journal Stone Publishing is seeking stories between 5,000 and 7,000 words, and the deadline for submissions is May 31st, 2022. For more information on the open call, visit https colon forward slash forward slash hellnotes.com forward slash open dash call dash a-z-a-t-h-o-t-h dash o-r-d-o dash a-b dash c-h-a-o. Nine Star Press is open for submissions to listen a gothic horror story collection centered around sound. This collection will feature trans and non-binary authors from the community. Stories must have a gothic element, and rather than relying on gore to scare, give them the fear that lives within. Additionally, stories must capture the theme of sound. Submission length is up to 15,000 words, and deadline to submit is March 31st, 2022. For additional submission guidelines, visit 9starpress.com forward slash submissions. Quill and Crow Publishing House is open for submissions for their third anthology, Bleak Midwinter, an anthology of gothic horror. They are looking for stories that encompass the darkness of the winter season with literary themes. Story length is between 5,000 and 8,000 words, and the deadline to submit is September 13th, 2022. For more information, visit https colon forward slash forward slash quillandcrowpublishinghouse.com forward slash anthology submissions. The Late Night a horror podcast is brought to you by Monarch T. Lawrence. Find us at monaria.com and The Late Night Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.